Welcome back to the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of the show's sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Online Mentorship is 20 hours of top-class strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes. Check it out and help support the show. Next, I want to give a shout out to Altus360 and Altus Education, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Next, I want to give a shout out to Joseph Johnson at Ultimate Alley Concepts. Ultimate Alley Concepts is a multifaceted company providing the most sophisticated scientific material in sports science. Ultimate Alley Concepts is the world's leading resource for translated sports preparation material. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available. Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft. Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming. Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore. And Program Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all of the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beef's, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, head over to the show notes to get the links to all of the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus360 and Altus Education, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before we get into today's interview, I just want to let all the listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel that you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you'd be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling from me. Let's get into today's show. This episode's guest is Alex Fiede from Complete Human Performance. Alex is a NSCA certified strength and conditioning specialist and USA triathlon coach. He is the founder and co-owner of Complete Human Performance. A lifelong athlete, he has participated and competed in nearly every sport imaginable. I bet you haven't played hurling or Gaelic football, Alex, so you haven't played all sports, my man. Some with greater success than others. Since being dragged to his first swim meet when he was only four years old, poor little guy. Alex has close to 13 years of personal training and coaching experience with over 300 athletes of all ages and levels in sports ranging from bodybuilding to ultra running to triathlon to cycling to powerlifting. He's also prepared close to 40 individuals for ranger school, buds, and other selective military programs. A graduate of Duke University, so Alex is smart, guys, currently on a hiatus from a Master's of Physiology program from North Carolina State University, Alex enjoys lifting heavy things, biking, running long distances, and otherwise pushing himself to his limit, though his body is not always on board with the program. And as you can see, He's a very good sense of humor. He is also an avid home brewer. That's going to go down well with all of our Irish listeners. And if you give him much of an opening, he will happily bore you with the details on hop schedules and yeast strain flocculation. I think I said that word right. You've been warned. 
On this episode, Alex and I discuss many topics, including Alex's background and his influences. What are the good and not so good things that Alex currently sees within the physical preparation profession? And what solutions would he offer for the not so good things that he's currently seeing? I asked Alex, how did he get into hybrid or what's also known as concurrent training? I asked Alex, what considerations need to be made for strength athletes wanting to start endurance sports? And what considerations do endurance athletes need to make when they want to get into strength sports? I asked Alex, what is it like to deal with different personality types between strength athletes versus endurance athletes when they begin their journey into concurrent training? I asked Alex about the nutritional needs for the hybrid athlete. I asked Alex, how does he calculate an athlete's caloric needs when they begin to engage in concurrent training? I asked Alex, what are the common myths that he consistently has to dismiss with concurrent training? And what are the benefits for strength athletes to incorporate some endurance work into their training regimes and vice versa for the endurance athlete? I asked Alex to discuss his design of training cycles for concurrent training and how he consolidates stressors. I asked Alex, how does he peak individuals for powerlifting meets and endurance events that are very close together on the competition calendar? I asked Alex, how does he learn? I asked Alex, what have been the biggest lessons he's learned so far in his life? I asked Alex for his top resources and life advice. I asked Alex, if he only had one year left on planet Earth, how would he spend that year and why? And finally, I asked Alex the big question, if he could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who would he invite? and why guys this is an absolutely outstanding episode with alex and i hope you really really enjoy it perfect rocking and rolling okay alex thank you so much for making time for uh, to come on to the podcast just before uh, i introduce let me apologize uh, we scheduled this for this time last week and i fucked up on my end uh, my computer was kind of fucking up um you know i, I always say this to people like first world issues because even <laughs> even, even still, I, I've recorded two podcasts on the laptop I have right now, and I uh, I was assuming that like the audio setup would be the same as my I should never make assumptions for agreements would, would be the same as my other uh, laptop, and it wasn't. So when I did the interviews, the guests their audio came out well, but my audio came out like terrible. <laughs> Oh. But not terrible, but like not good. Yeah. So this, this is why you see me mic'd up now with earphones because I was testing to make sure, right, well, I'm not fucking up this interview with Alex. <laughs> so, but anyway, listen, thanks so much for making the time. Really looking forward to getting into this conversation because I know the two of us are uh, exercise fizz and exercise science nerds. But for the yeah. listeners who uh, aren't too familiar with who you are, give us a full uh, rundown on the background. Sure, yeah. Uh, my name is Alex Fiat. I run a company called Complete Human Performance. We've been around since about 2012. Uh, we were kind of founded on the on, on what we call you know hybrid training, which is called concurrent training, which is as I like to tell people used to just be called exercise. Um, Though the whole concept of strength and endurance training and learning how to combine them into effective programs, being able to do both without compromise, and uh, you know a lot of what we a lot of what we do is managing these kind of you know hybrid athletes, and we talk a lot about recovery. We talk about a lot of stressor consolidation, things like that. That's kind of our our area. Um, personally, in my background, I uh, went to Duke University, graduated, I'm not going to tell you how many years ago. Um, background is biology, biochemistry. I worked in pharma for a while before starting this company. Uh, been a athlete of varying caliber for most of my life, uh, usually on the small caliber side of things. So, uh, you know, kind of uh, almost fell into athletics. Um, when, I, uh, when I took a brief hiatus in college, I came back and got very into strength sports. 
But a couple of years into that and, and doing very well on the strength side of things, I realized what a gaping hole there was in my fitness on the endurance side. So started incorporating that and really a lot of what Compete Human Performance does and a lot of our applications, a lot of what we do with hybrid methodology is actually based on a number of mistakes I made uh, very early on and the kind of years of analysis that went into addressing those mistakes. So did you say you worked for pharma? It's just there. Did you just, you, you kind of just, you kind of just slid past that one. We went in and went out real quick. Yeah. Yeah. After, after, um, after college, after university, uh, for about 10 years, I was in, in pharma in clinical research, uh, clinical trial wow. management. Yeah. Yeah. That was, you know, it was interesting too, because I think that, uh, that was a, really an invaluable education in, in managing and monitoring clinical trials, looking at drug development, device development, things like that. Really, really invaluable way of being able to look at you know, the, the, both the advantages and disadvantages of clinical research, uh, looking, re- learning how to read and understand study protocols and evaluate papers that came out afterwards, and uh, really doing so in you know, kind of the, the gold standard environment of 3,000-person, eight-year trials, uh, you know, very well funded. So it, it, it gives an interesting perspective when you now look at, you know, a lot of studies, a lot of trials that are done in kind of the fitness realm. So it's uh, in some ways the best education I could hope for going into this field. Yeah, definitely. It was just, that's what I was just thinking. Because again, like, I don't know if you read that book by Ben Goldacre, Bad Science, and he has that other one called Bad Pharma, but he's a, he's a medical like investigator. I think mm-hmm. he actually went to medical school himself, but he just said uh, yeah. he's a journalist. And like the... F- Oh, like the shit bad pharma gets away with in terms of twists and like some of their studies and results. But he's just okay. like, in, in terms of making you a better critical thinker, like yeah. act, actually being a part of that can, can actually be a, a blessing in disguise, you know? It, re- it really is. You, you see a lot of the good, bad, ugly, and a lot of the great, you know, I, I think yeah, there are also yeah. very, 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 very good sides to it. Yeah. That I think yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, and that's actually that's a good point and something I want to reiterate to any of the listeners. I, I think we got, I don't know about you, but I, I think a lot of us, you know, in this sort of, you know, and I know that like a lot of people would say we're in the strength and conditioning profession or the fitness profession, but kind of like anyone who's like, like us in, in our sphere, we're very universal and general. So like we like to, to dip our fingers in so many different domains. But uh, like, uh, I think we kind of go through that growth phase when, well, I know I did, you know, where you're like, uh, you're young and then you get angry when you learn about like all the injustice in the world, like like the economy and the money systems and like, you know, it's the Bilderberg group and the Zeitgeist and Fat Farmer yeah. trying to fucking kill everyone and vaccines. And, and then like you, you kind of mellow, you know, when you get to your mid to later 20s and then 30s. And then you actually realize that conventional medicine and pharma actually aren't all that, like they actually do have some good to them too. Now, again, at the same time, there is, there is a lot of corruption money, don't get me wrong, but like, oh, for sure. there's, a, there's a spectrum there. You don't want to throw, as the saying, don't throw the baby out of the bathwater. So, you know, it's a, you need to be able to, it's funny, I think Brian Walsh probably said the best thing ever, ever that it wasn't directly to me, it was at a conference and he goes, don't be closed-minded. And everyone was like, yeah, yeah, of course, of course, never be closed-minded. And he goes, yeah, but don't be open-minded. And everyone's like, what? <laughs> what? And he goes, be critically minded. He says, there's a difference between being critically minded and being open-minded. Open-minded is like where you're just aloof and like, oh, I love everything. Everything works. And closed-minded is obviously like every, every, everything's just, you know, you're just not opening it. And he's like, critical mind is where you have a filter. So like going back to like where I was young and like the whole world was bullshit and I knew best and like, you know, everyone's trying to kill you and all that. It's kind of mm-hmm. like, ah, that's not that. There, there's still some decent 
good standing individuals in like the conventional Western model of medicine and even in the pharmaceutical industry. Now, again, there are a lot of interests, there are a lot of gobshites and assholes, mm-hmm. but again, don't throw the whole baby out of the pot water. But again, at the same time, I, I'm definitely, my heart is definitely more like Eastern integrative functional medicine for sure. Mm-hmm. But there, there are practitioners in there who are just as unscientific as there is in conventional medicine. You know? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I, you know, I think one of the one of the most interesting things about uh, pharma is that there are there were very very many very very many people. There were a lot of people I met who were just genuinely good people and genuinely believe in what they do. And the investigators and the people running the trials and everything else. A lot of these people, legitimately, you, you you'll pin them down and you know you meet with them after a meeting and you know get a couple of drinks in them and they get very very honest and they really do want to be doing what they're doing for the good of humanity. It's all the the layers of everything else around them and corporate objectives and, you know, limited trial runs and, you know, people who their, their director is looking for a promotion. That's the stuff around it that really makes it, you know, corrupt as you want to say it. But uh, you know, the majority of the people working in these fields are such good people. So it's just, you know, it's interesting. You kind of, again, throw the baby out with the bathwater, realize that there are good people that are doing good work and good stuff coming out of it. It's just, you got to be able to be critically minded about where you think the, you know, any kind of corruption is coming in. Yeah, big time. Anyway, that was a big digression on the background. Sorry. So, no, 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 that was me who got into it. Um, all right. So, a question I like to ask all the guests is about their influences. So, in terms of your influences, who have been the biggest influence on you, both personally and then also professionally? Oof. Um, I would say, man, professionally, there would be two. Um, the first biggest influence I had was Dr. Bernd Mueller. He was one of my college professors my freshman year at Duke University. And he was a very high level physicist, a great professor there. And he was, he was one of these individuals who had so much effortless mastery of his field and his topic and knew so much, but he managed to convert some of the most complex concepts in physics into something that could just be easily understandable by college freshmen. And I think a lot of a lot of the way I think about things, a lot of the way I try to convey information, and also the respect he had for everybody, even 18-year-old kids fresh out of high school, here was an individual who was one of the smartest people probably that I've ever met in my life, and he still had the humility to say he learned things from people 30 years, 40 years younger than him. He became such kind of a, a model for how I like to interact, how I like to teach, how I like to speak to people, and kind of the, the principle of charity that always everybody has something to teach you. So he's, he's outside industry. You know, he's obviously, he's a, he's a college professor. I'm not even sure if he's still there. He was the chair of physics at the time. Uh, but just uh, what, a, what an impact he had kind of on my, my personal growth, um, especially on the education side of things. So on a professional level, you know, it's, that, that's a really tough one because I think there are a lot of people I respect very much professionally, but I've taken a very different a uh, very different course than they have. Um, the person who got me interested when I first got into this field, nutrition was my main area. It was a toss-up between Dan Duquesne and Lyle McDonald and their original books on ketogenic diets and you know rapid fat loss. And I think when I was looking at their books, uh, I realized what a what a complex field it was. When I first started training again, I always had this almost simplistic view of what exercise and nutrition were. And, uh, you know, this is even before I started delving into things like Zatsyorsky and, you know, super training and everything else, looking at their approach to nutrition, which was, you know, from Dan Duquesne's side of things, almost more of a you know, kind of hacking bro side of things, though he's very sharp. 
And then Lyle's very analytical approach, I suddenly realized that there was a lot more science here than I'd ever given it credit for, which kind of sparked my thinking, okay, this is something that, this is something that deserves more than just a surface consideration. So I would say those would probably be my biggest influences. Yeah, def- definitely. I know, like, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm aware of Dan Duchesne, and I actually have a few of his older articles. Like, he was one of the first guys writing about, like, steroids and, like, how to do them properly. And, yep. But, um, I, yeah, I have a, all of Lyle's books. So I think Lyle's done some fantastic, um, just some, some fa- fantastic pieces of work. Like, his mm-hmm. latest book there, too, he finally got that, that woman's book done. And he was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's like saying it for years like this bug is yeah. to kill me but like yeah he's he's put out some savage information even just his website alone in terms of like just free content is amazing and uh, you know that's that's been a major influence as well is the the constant giving out of free content yeah. um you know everything else being what it is just the um the the sort of abundance mindset there that i think is is really needed where you just you give stuff away for free all the time and all that's going to do is help elevate everybody so, you know, personality issues and everything else aside, I, I think that's, that's how more people should do business. Yeah, and no, I'm actually happy you said that last bit, personality issues aside, because I think what happens a lot of the time is we keep confusing, like, disagreement with dislike, or even mm-hmm. if we dislike someone, it doesn't mean we should disregard their information, either, you know? So, um, and it's, it's, you know, listen, we're human. Emotions are obviously a, a massive part of, of what makes us human too. So, but it's just being able to come to uh, an awareness and a place to be able to appreciate that. Listen, I might not necessarily like the individual, but fuck me, they know their shit. And yeah. I, 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 I can still learn a lot from them. Exactly. Um, and again, if, you're, if, if, if your filter is pretty good in terms of, again, being critically minded, you can always, you know, you, you're in a position to say, listen, I like this bit, but I won't take that bit. You know, because mm-hmm. whatever else. So, but it's just yeah, it's just be able to dis- dissociate because that was probably one of the best things I learned from one of my mentors, Mike Boyle. Was again, you know, you can disagree without disliking someone, or you can always learn something from anyone, even if you don't fully agree with every bit of what they're even saying, or even if you don't morally like them, uh, you know, their character. Like, there's still something to always be learned from everyone. So it's just, just it's just important. Like, I'm mm-hmm. very happy, uh, glad you brought that up. Uh, so that's great. Yeah, got to be your background, be your influences. Um, so a question I'm going to ask uh, before we get into the more specific topics that I want to get you on, which is to talk about hybrid training and concurrent training, which actually was a major area of study for me this year. I just finished the second year of my master's mm. in St. Mary's in Twickenham. And it's an absolute, I've said this in all the podcasts, absolutely brilliant master's. Like it's, it's far <laughs> exceeded what, what I had anticipated. It's just absolutely excellent. But our physiology module was one I did this year along with my biomechanics and concurrent training was a big topic in that. And actually, how shit the research is in that field. Yep. <laughs> it's like the, the, the original paper from Hickson, like, uh, so you, you've probably seen this. The one, uh, it was 1980, he was early 80s, and Hickson was a powerlifter, and he mm-hmm. wanted to impress his, his professor who he was under. And so his professor was endurance. Actually, Hickson was a powerlifter, and he started doing all this endurance run, and then his powerlifts went down. He's just like, oh, endurance training makes you weaker. And it's like, that was a little bit too simple. <laughs> <laughs> you you just started you, you you kept the same volume up for your power of training and you just added all this endurance training and then you just concluded but yeah. anyway before before we get into that um just want to ask you about just the profession as a whole so with regards to the good and the not so good things you currently see within the entire fitness profession and um, what would you say are the good things and what would you say are the not so good things and with the not so good things what solutions would you offer so I think the, the good things is actually going back to what you said about being more critically minded. I think, I, I think the industry is doing a, a much, much better job of self-policing itself at this point. Um, you know, I know, 
I know with this area, again, it being such a, you know, for, for many people, health, fitness, wellness, everything else is, is very emotional in a lot of ways. Uh, physical appearance, uh, longevity, all these things, there's a strong emotional tie to it. And I think as a result, you know, almost as old as, you know, charlatanism itself, there have always been people looking to cash in on that and make a quick buck on it. And I think this, uh, this, this industry is doing a very, very good job of bringing forth better information and really teaching people to approach things with a critical eye. Mm. And, you know, I think as a result, good information is getting propagated, still not as quickly as bad information, but faster than it used to be. And I think as an overall, even the, the more outlandish areas of the industry are getting reeled in just a little bit. So I think that's, that's one positive thing I've seen, you know, at least certainly within uh, you know, a lot of the personal trainer circles is a much greater desire for verified knowledge. And, you know, I think there are a lot more certification courses out there that actually base, are based on good, solid information. Uh, there are a lot more fitness educators out there who are fighting the good fight and not just teaching people to, you know, turn out you know, ways to make a quick buck. So I'm, I'm glad to see that side of the business has grown. That's, that's one of the better things. And I would say in strength and conditioning as well, um, I think that's improved dramatically. I think strength and conditioning on the training side of things has moved more away from some of these specialists and also, you know, from the kind of old school nepotism that used to be there in, in programs. And I think a lot more people with actual exercise phys backgrounds and biomechanics backgrounds are actually getting more input into things like professional sports teams, which I think is really revolutionizing the way a lot of these teams manage their training. And what would you say are the, the not so good? Uh, <laughs> and, and solutions. The, well, yeah, because the, the, the first one is actually similar to the being too critically minded. I think a little bit to our prior discussion, I think there is a lot of tendency to simplify almost to the point of propagating bad information. Mm. And I, I think what I mean by that is, you know, you, you and I, before this conversation started, we're just talking about a few individuals we knew who put together what seemed to be almost quackery uh, with their conclusions, but, and they're very easy to dismiss because of that. But when you dig into the details of what they're discussing, there's actually an excellent scientific foundation to it. And I think the, we know enough I think as an industry to know when we're really being sold a bill of goods, but we don't know enough to dig into it just a little bit more and tease out what is actually useful innovation. And I think as a result, we've become a bit closed minded and I've made this mistake myself many times in being closed minded to potentially useful innovations because we think, Oh, you know, that's just another snake oil product. Um, a couple that stand to mind, uh, come to mind, halo neuroscience, uh, with some of their, uh, the, you know, the, the headsets that they have that actually use a kind of a brain modulation, electromagnetic modulation of the brain to teach sports skill. I thought, oh, well, this is ridiculous. You know, what is this nonsense? And looking it up and actually investigating some of the scientists, including scientists at DARPA, which, you know, provide pretty much every secret weapons program to the government that there is, the U.S. government, finding that this is based on very, very good cutting-edge technology. And looking at that and just letting that trickle down into other ideas, like you look, look at the benefits of ketogenic diets and endurance athletes, say everyone loves to slam keto, but there's some uses. Everybody loves to slam this device, but there's some interesting uses to it and some good science. There's a new device that you blow into that tells you, you know, whether you should be eating more fat and more carbohydrates. Sounds like a joke, but it actually involves something called respiratory quotient. So by doing that, it actually tells you what, you know, what percentage of each substance you burn, you know, all of that kind of stuff and realizing that there is some cutting edge science out there. And I think this industry could stand to do a slightly better job 
of being cautiously open-minded, or as you say, cautiously critically open-minded uh, to some of these new ideas. Uh, so I think um, we, I think I would kind of challenge the leaders in the business to approach new ideas with kind of a principle of charity and not immediately say, this is stupid, but say, hmm, this doesn't seem right, but let me first see if there's some quality to this. And if there is quality, let me pull that out and then see if there's anything that overwhelms the quality and makes this something not worth considering. So basically, like I said, a bit more of a principle of charity from kind of our thought leadership in looking at potentially good ideas that are coming out. Yeah, definitely. Couldn't agree more. And, and by the way, just to give credit, is Brian Walsh now, in fairness, who said the critically minded thing. So no. <laughs> <laughs> got to give Brian some credit, who actually has recently come out with a fantastic mitochondrial course that I just purchased that I'll probably will never have a chance to study. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> well, not that, my, not that my master's is done. I'm actually, I'm in the middle of taking the Altus Foundation course, which is, which is another fun, <laughs> phenomenal resource. So I'm heavy in that because I'm, I'm not back in college until mid-September. And I was like, when summer comes, I'm attacking this Altus course. So I've kept that promise to myself. Um, okay, moving into your uh, area of expertise, even though I, I know at heart you're like myself, you're, you're a universalist, you're, you're a universal individual, you like to read and put your toe into many domains, because as, as, as myself, I realize that the whole universe is just one big fucking connection. It's funny, I always say to people, yeah, I got into strength and condition, which then got me into rehab, which then got me into nutrition, which then got me into functional medicine, which then got me into human behavior, and I just kept opening up all these doors, and then eventually I just came out the other side of this hole, I was like, holy fuck, everything is just connected. It's all one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, but anyway, so the hybrid athlete—that's also the name of your book—and um, mm. uh, complete human performance is your company, mm. and you guys specialize in concurrent training, essentially. So, yep. uh, people come to you who want to be strong, but also want to be pretty enduring. So, first of all, like, how did you get into this rabbit hole? Um, it started uh, when uh, I had a couple beers on one of my birthdays and got signed up for a five k. Now, hold on, hold on. That's a lie. A couple of beers? Yeah, maybe more than a couple. You're talking to an Irishman here. Now, I'm an Irishman who doesn't drink, but a couple of beers doesn't. <laughs> a couple of beers isn't in the lexicon of Irish people, you know? <laughs> enough to not really remember the poor decision. Put it that way. <laughs> enough, uh, to, enough to remember the, de- the decision, but not to remember what was actually said. Yeah, enough to actually have the wherewithal to actually sign up for the thing, but not enough to actually remember it the next morning until yeah, I saw yeah. the confirmation. But, um, you know, that's, that's honestly what got me into it. And again, you know, I said I remember there was a hole in my fitness. It was, uh, it was the kind of thing where, you know, I, I felt very strong. I felt like I was in great shape. And, you know, I was challenged to run this 5K and, you know, naturally, like anything else, somebody challenges you to do something that you have no desire to do, well, you just go ahead and do it because you don't want to turn down the challenge ever. And I remember my first day training for it. And now I, you know, I ran track in high school. Um, I played soccer or played, I mean, pretty much every sport under the sun. So I always thought I was in fairly good cardiovascular shape. I went out for my first training run and got about 100 meters uh, before I realized that I couldn't run anymore. And it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. And I thought I was in great shape. I started out, I felt great. And I started getting tunnel vision. Uh, <laughs> less than half a kilometer, I, I, I completely bonked out. And I said, well, this, is, this, this can't be good. You know, this, you know for, for, I, I should be able to competently run a mile without feeling destroyed. So trained for this 5K. And um, in the post-5K celebration, which involved maybe a, a, just a couple of beers, um, signed up for a marathon later that year because that's the next logical progression. Um, 
really a lot of the whole rabbit hole of understanding concurrent training, like I was saying earlier, came from a lot of mistakes I made. A little bit like the study you referenced earlier, I simply took my existing powerlifting strength-focused training and layered on a marathon running program. And it went about as well as it did then, as well as you could expect. I, you know, I got weaker, I had all sorts of running issues and gait issues and everything else, and didn't do as well as I wanted to at all. And went around and, you know, I, the interesting thing was I was getting to become a better runner. You know, I could, my short distance runs were very good and everything else, but I just, I did not have any efficiency. I did not have that base aerobic engine that I thought I should. And understanding how to, working on my own training and taking out all the garbage pieces and taking out all the superfluous work and really getting a little more granular and analyzing what the critical components of fitness were that I was building with each workout is what started to slowly put together the framework for what I call hybrid training. And understanding the whole consolidation of stressors and doing all your strength and speed work together and doing all your hypertrophy work together and all your long, slow run and long, slow distance work together. And then starting to apply that to clients and using effectively my first you know, 50, 60 clients as test beds for this is really kind of what refined it. And it's just grown from there, honestly. Um, have the luxury of having data from thousands and thousands of athletes over the years that we continuously look at, reevaluate, see what worked, see what didn't, best practices, learning what tendencies are by training background, training age, gender, age, uh, you know, chronological age, all these things, and getting a better idea of how to train concurrent athletes. Okay, so let's get into the training then aspects of um, somebody who wants to get into more concurrent type training. So what I like about, because I've taken your level one um, and I, I've, I've read your book, and, and what I like about um, the way you break down the sort of um, athletes is you have the spectrum of, you know, you have a strength athlete who wants to start getting into more endurance and then you have the endurance athlete who wants to get into more sort of strength events. So maybe just uh, take us down that road of, you know, sort of how you classify these sort of two athletes on that continuum um, and sort of sort, sort of the like what what are certain considerations you need to make so like one i love is like you know obviously if you have like a really like heavyweight powerlifter it's like well what considerations do you have to make it well if they're going to run that's a lot of uh, weight in their joints and if they're going to like cycle a bike uh, they might have a lot of chafing going on between their massive ties you know just simple little things like that but yeah, uh, yeah what, what considerations would need to be made for the strength athlete going into endurance and then on the other end of that spectrum the endurance athlete going into strength yeah, so there are, there are always a couple of factors because if you look at, say, a strength athlete going into endurance, they, they may have a very high training age in strength and their volume tolerance for strength may be fantastic. Their training age in endurance may be very, very low or you sometimes get cases where they used to run a lot when they were younger, so they think they have a level of competence there, but they developed a running form as a 70 kilogram individual and now they are 110 kilos and trying to run and everything just goes to hell. Mm. So when we look at a strength athlete who wants to get into endurance, first of all, we look at the training background, we look at injury history and everything else. We look at the injuries that are typically or overuse injuries typically associated with powerlifting. We get very concerned about looking at hip movement, looking at hamstring engagement in the run, looking at form. So one of the first things we say for strength athletes is we need to know obviously your full train, your full injury history, because that is definitively going to affect your running gait. And a lot of strength-related overuse injuries, including things, or even acute injuries, things like uh, you know, lower back pain, things like excessive hamstring tension and tightness and potentially tears, a lot of those can compromise running form significantly. Um, a lot of strength athletes have a great degree of anterior pelvic tilt, 
which you'll see exaggerated in the running form. That anterior pelvic tilt alters their center of gravity slightly, brings it forward, results in excessive back arch, but can still result in the weight being shifted forward to the point where they get a lot of calf strain, so they get calf pumps when they run. So looking at the individual like that and looking at the adaptations that have come along with strength training, you, get, you start to be able to paint a picture of how this specialized body is going to respond to an endurance activity. So we typically run them through initial gait cycles. And the longer their training history as a strength athlete and the longer their consistent training history and progress is, the more we look out for certain tendencies. One of them, like I mentioned, anterior pelvic tilt. We look for tight hamstrings. We look for immobility in the hips. We look for shoulders that are, tend to be rounded forward. You know, a lot, of, a lot of that movement. We see that more in powerlifters. In bodybuilders, they actually tend to be fairly balanced. So when we look at a lot of those things, the first thing we, of course, understand is that their tolerance for running is going to be relatively low. Uh, their form, just by virtue of their training history, is going to give them certain postures, certain, certain characteristics to the running form that's going to necessitate a very low volume approach to the running initially. So for them, for strength athletes, we actually do most of their cardiovascular base building in other modalities that are simpler. We'll use cycling, stationary bike, airdyne, rowers, um, hiking, rucking, you know, uphill, stair climb, things like that to build the base because the running form is still going to be restricted by their current form. Mm. and pushing their running to the point where they're getting a massive cardiovascular benefit out of it, they're going to be perpetuating bad running habits. They're going to be potentially eliciting overuse injuries that may have been very preventable by taking a greater focus on running form. So the greater their training age as a strength athlete, the lower the proportion of actual running that will do for them in the first phase of a running cycle. And that's almost universal. And a couple of other things contribute to that. The more elite the athlete they are in strength sports, the less running they'll do. The heavier they are, heavier weight class power lifters, the less running they'll do. Mm -hmm. So we had, a, uh, we had one athlete we trained. He was uh, 350 pounds, 360 pounds. Um, power lifter, strong man, great training history, had been competing. You know, he was almost 40 at that point, and he wanted to run a 10K. And up until about a month before the 10K, he wouldn't, we wouldn't have him run more than a mile at a time. And everything else was base building because every run he did had the specific objective of improving his running form mm. and practicing his gait. And it's a little bit like when you get somebody into a lifting program, the same thing. And somebody is learning lifts for the first time and really wants to get good, really wants to get proficient. You don't just have them perform a movement 50 times until they're exhausted because only the first four will be of decent quality. The other 46 are just going to be terrible. Same thing with the running. We have a lot of these individuals run for only as long as they can maintain proper form, posture, engagement, mindfulness. Once that starts to compromise, we tell them to go do something else. So form work, quality work, and less sports-specific work because they can't yet tolerate the volume is a characteristic of endurance training for our strength athletes. So... But yeah, that was one thing that was kind of worth touching on. I mean, other things, of course, are things like, um, you know, training in different environments and strength athletes and more dense athletes. They overheat faster. They generate more heat per square centimeter of surface area on their skin. So they have a harder time dissipating heat. They are more prone to, you know, any sort of heat injury, heat stroke, anything else. Um, you know, uh, gosh, I can, I can keep going down the list. Um, terrain matters more. Uh, footwear matters more. 
uh, a lot of these little things that are only minor considerations for endurance athletes or the casual endurance athletes suddenly became major considerations for strength athletes. Mm, mm. So we basically will look at our strength athletes, even the casual runners with the same level of scrutiny as you may look at an elite marathon runner uh, as far as performance envelope and characteristics go, because every single issue they have is so magnified by their physiology, by their, by the, by their physique, by everything else. Yes, that's like that whole segment there is just absolute gold. Like just the little nuggets you brought out, you know. Just uh, even in terms of like the overweight athlete over- overheating, that's a massive thing. Even you know, um, and just like you know, so get their aerobic fitness up through means that won't be detrimental to uh, like um, the, the their joint system. You know, it won't cause an orthopedic issue in the future. But at the same time, concurrently, they can still work on the skill of running. And I've done a lot of research lately on skill acquisition and obviously like you brought up a great point there, you know, they might've learned to run when they like previously weighed 80, 90 kilo, but it's like now they're 110, maybe 120 and they've done no running at that body weight and now they're going to reintroduce it. So even from a skill acquisition standpoint, as well as the orthopedic loads of their joints, like that's just, uh, you know, some gold you just mentioned there. Uh, go going in. Oh yeah, go ahead. Go on. You want to say no, something? Uh, no, no. Go ahead. Uh, going in now from the opposite end of the spectrum. So the endurance athlete comes to you. Great endurance background, but mm-hmm. like you know, I've never really done any sort of concentrated strength development. What are some of the considerations there? Um, one of the most difficult considerations, first thing to get past, is the fact that when you initially introduce strength training, you may see a slight decrease in performance on the endurance side of things. Um, some of that is and that is always always such a challenging yeah, thing. To yeah, yeah. And it is so tempting for endurance athletes to chalk that up to increased muscle gain and, and lack of recovery. And, and to a certain extent, they are related. Um, when we start with endurance athletes, funnily enough, one of the first things we tend to start with is development of muscle groups that are not immediately associated with their chosen sport. So, for example, a cyclist comes to us and says, I want to get faster. I want to raise my FTP, more wattage. We don't start by hammering their legs. Because for the first three to four weeks, if we start hammering their legs, they're just going to get slower on the bike. We're going to lose their engagement entirely. We start with things like improving upper body posture, improving shoulder position, improving arm strength, little things that can help improve their posture efficiency. For example, um, cyclists, one of the biggest things is that under heavy load, near maximum performance, near their FTP, cyclists start to get a lot of hip movement on the bike. And you can see that every time the hips shift, you're losing a little bit of power and a little bit of energy because rather than the glutes and hamstrings pulling down, the quads pushing down, what you're having is that the, that push is outweighed by a bit of a shift in the pelvis to the other direction, which means that all of a sudden the muscles of the trunk and core and arms or everything else are, tr- are trying to engage to stabilize. It's wasted movement. One of the first things we'll do with cyclists is start a strength training program that emphasizes shoulder upper back position and then core engagement and core tightness and what we'll see with endurance athletes is that they'll notice immediate improvements we'll see the same thing with runners improving your posture improving your shoulder balance improving the ability to keep your up you know your your shoulders back and keep your weight over the center of your gravity can improve running efficiency by five to ten percent so when we take endurance athletes the first thing we hit is the low-hanging fruit with them when it comes to strength training and we say okay psychologically we want to make sure these individuals don't see any decrease in their endurance performance and may even see an increase. So once that's handled and once they've kind of said, okay, you know, some of the strength training is actually doing good stuff for us. Then we start to get into some of the, you know, involved muscle training. And uh, one of the, one of the first things we do is we avoid the endless endurance sets. 
Um, you know, the, the idea, a lot of endurance athletes don't mind the idea of getting under a lightweight and doing 20 reps because, because for them, endurance athletes tend not to have a good conception of what their one rep max is by nature of their sport, by nature of how they approach a training challenge, their conception of challenge is more based around the ability to tolerate extended discomfort over time. A power lifter can tolerate extended discomfort under a single bar. A weightlifter can tolerate that brief, is able to engage that momentary mental and physical arousal needed to get the bar moving, and they'll know within the first quarter second if they're going to make it or not. When we work with endurance athletes, one of the most challenging things to do is get them to learn how to approach failure in their lifts because the lifting for them, we wanted to improve speed, power. We wanted to improve balance and coordination, proprioception, all these things. You know, you're doing heavy squats. It improves all of those things. That doesn't mean that we're going to take every marathon runner and make them do heavy squats, but the skill acquisition is some of the characteristics associated with heavy squats. If we're going to have them do that, that's going to, we want them doing three to five rep maxes on their squats to help improve these things, to help improve their lower back strength, glute strength, hamstring strength, to balance out possibly that quad hamstring engagement. So we need to teach them to lift heavy. They don't like to lift heavy. It's not their sport. It's not their mental discipline. You know, I believe that a lot of athletes are kind of self-selecting in the kind of suffering they like to endure. So somebody who's been a lifelong runner, the type of suffering they like to endure is not the feeling of a heavy barbell on their back. So we need to actually teach them proactively, okay, here's how, here's how to approach a bar, here's how to brace, here is how, this is how it's going to feel when you're actually approaching failure. So we spend a lot of time with endurance athletes going into strength training saying, you don't necessarily know your own strength and you can't be afraid to utilize it. We'll also see a lot of imbalances. We tend to see a proportionally very, very weak lower back. And it's not because the lower backs are not strong. It's because their lower backs typically just engage posturally and are very endurant over time, but not particularly good at resisting load. So again, that's why we prioritize this core and upper body training going into a lot of it, because then when we start loading them with free weights, they have the ability to brace. There's nothing worse than taking a runner who's never done significant upper body and core engagement work and telling them to put a heavy barbell on their back and squat it. Work from the top down and fix those top issues and then the core issues and then the bottom issues. So I would say, again, the, the biggest thing, taking endurance athletes, putting them in the weight room, the biggest thing is kind of this top-down approach and realizing that much like a lifter going into running, the endurance athlete needs to kind of earn the right to lift heavy weight. And we need to kind of teach them a way of bracing against load and approaching load and approaching heavy weights, both physically and psychologically, that's going to prepare them to get to the point where they can actually get a benefit from something like a barbell squat, because they won't see any benefit for the first two months. Yeah, I think a key point there that you brought up is just because somebody is maybe elite at their sport, doesn't mean that they're potentially going to be elite or very competent at another sport or, or another domain. So, you know, you're like, you're like, and, and as you actually brought up there, you were saying with like with the heavyweight powerlifter, like the more elite and like heavier they are, probably like the, 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 more, like the, the lower we need to start them off on, on the endurance type of training and we need to be more cautious, you know? So, and then same, obviously with an endurance person going to some type of strength training, you know? So it's like, what I'm trying to say is they may have a very high training age at, at their uh, specific sport, but they could be just like an infant then when you introduce themselves. Now there may be some transfer in terms of like, 
discipline to training and you know understanding progression which is actually leads in nicely now to my next question because this really i found very interesting at your course and I, i'm fairly sure you touched on this in the book is the personalities that come with this so you're like you know the strength athlete usually has a personality of like a little more instant gratification they like to like high intensity they like to grind they don't really like you know this delayed long-term plan as much as someone who's more of an endurance athlete who understands and kind of respects like volume and kind of more like long-term development and like you know this they they, they seem to kind of more appreciation for like longer term progression so could you maybe just touch on the different personalities of the strength athlete going into endurance and then the endurance going into strength Sure. Yeah. Because I mean, as, as you said, there are some overlaps, you know, with, with both great powerlifters, great weightlifters, great marathon runners. They of course have their whole year long plan of slow improvements and everything else. And, you know, I'm going to peak this time and this time and this time. And, you know, I don't need to see immediate improvements every workout. I just need to know I'm going in the right direction, but there is a very sort of interesting tendency. I think I know of very few marathon runners who like going out and testing their PRs on distances in their training. Sure, they all like to go faster. Nobody likes to go slower over a given route. But the tendency to do, the tendency to test and retest, um, especially for, you know, kind of you said instant gratification, is much, much higher in strength athletes. And I think the, the desire to, when the, the objective, and you think about it, the gratification from different kinds of training can be very different sorts of feeling. The gratification from a good run is a sort of full body exhaustion and exhilaration and the feeling of having, you know, pushed your limit and drained yourself and have dealt with suffering over that 20 minute period, over that one hour period. It's, it's almost this, you know, not neurological, but physical fatigue that just, that is where some of the euphoria that comes in from a good training session, Mm. you put that endurance athlete in the weight room, they're not going to get that from a training session. Conversely for, you know, a power lifter, the a lot of the exhilaration comes in from being able to hit that heavy lift from putting everything together and hitting a lift or hitting a set that they previously found unapproachable you know doing this target movement at that target speed with that target load absolutely killed it they don't necessarily need that full body exhaustion or crushing feeling um you know that complete fatigue to feel like they got a good workout in And sometimes they'll say, yeah, you know, I feel like I really killed him in the gym. I can hardly walk, you know, great. But understanding kind of the the difference in their training objective on each day and what to them constitutes a good workout, that is very much tied into the mentality and how they approach their training and how to reward them in their training as well, which is a major, major thing. And understanding that, especially for concurrent athletes, they are probably not going to have the same reward feedback mechanism for completing the workout in their less favorite sport as they do for completing workout in their favorite sport and being able to manage that and being able to maintain a level of mental and physical engagement into a workout that they that simply isn't in their personality is always a major challenge how do you go about educating individuals on that that's a lot of it is a, you know, quote unquote, trust the process sort of thing. But of course, that doesn't always work. <laughs> what, <laughs> we, we try to translate it into terms that they understand. And when I, when I mentioned a little bit about the long-term plan, mm. um, you know, one of, the, one of the things that I'll tell people is that a lot of what they're doing, you know, they, it's like skipping their accessory work. When we basically tell the lifters, you know, how's your progress been when you skip your accessory work? And how is it when you actually complete everything according to, according to plan and according to tempo? And, 
really just helping them understand that the, the crossover work that they're doing, they are never going to get huge satisfaction from it. And just come to that realization that you are not going to get a, a lifelong weightlifter excited about doing a 20 minute tempo run. It's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So the, the education basically comes in and saying the satisfaction needs to come from hitting these targets. You're numerically oriented, you're progression oriented. Here are the absolute targets I want you to hit. Don't chase the feeling, chase these targets, chase the training objective and get satisfaction from a good training cycle. Not just from saying, Oh, I hit this goal. Yeah. yeah. You know, so- oh yeah. You know, Basically, like, you know, kind of getting to enjoy the process more so than early attaining the actual goal itself. Exactly. And that's uh, when it comes down to the psychology of a lot of this training. It is. It's absolutely, like you said, that process orientation. Mm, great stuff. Okay, moving into nutrition, uh, yeah. which was, you know, a very important chapter in your book. And it's also a very important topic you teach on your course. Um, so two things. I, I, I love the way you sort of framed this. You're like, okay, two things from the get-go don't be afraid of calories and do not be afraid of carbs. So uh, maybe just get into like, you know, the importance of uh, nutrition, obviously, but like the importance of making sure a person who is going to now take on a concurrent program where they're going to be, you know, both doing a a lot of training in terms of overall volume intensities between doing both strength and and endurance type activities, just in terms of making sure that they are getting enough energy and in terms of their nutrition calories. And then also speak with, you know, the importance of, uh, just the, the macronutrient ratios as well. Yeah. So the, I guess the, the, the most important thing, as you mentioned, is that I think a lot of folks have been told so much that you can't out-train a bad diet. I hear it all the time, hear it all over the place. And, you know, yes, for most folks who are going in and doing a 30-minute, 30 30 you know, workout of the day and going out and jogging a mile, yes, that's absolutely true. Yeah, that, th- those people have never been around triathletes. No, exactly. Exactly. And when you start to ramp up your training to some of these levels, especially on some of these concurrent programs where you are repairing all the damage done from lifting, you want to maintain good energy stores for your weight training. You're going out and you're doing anywhere from 30 to 240 minute sessions on the bike or on the trail. You can absolutely out train pretty much any diet you want to do. So uh, you know, here first people. Uh, yeah, right. And, you know, because one of the, one of the things is people, people tend to get afraid and say, well, you know, I want to maintain my physique. I want to maintain my leanness and everything else. But the, the objective, especially when it's performance is you can't be afraid when you engage in a concurrent training program, you're spending a lot more time doing cardiovascular activity. You're spending time in the gym for an endurance athlete. They're going to see a lot more glycogen shifts just because of the way training they're doing. Uh, they possibly see, you know, even just greater daily inflammation, which is going to tick up that scale weight a little bit. Um, strength athletes, when they're seeing glycogen depletion from the way, you know, people are going to see weight fluctuations that they haven't accustomed, that they're not accustomed to in their training. And one of the fears is going to be that, you know, they don't want to gain weight. They don't want to lose definition. They don't want to get too far away from their race weight. So they'll start to restrict calories or not fuel things the way they need to be fueled. And one of the things that people don't necessarily realize is that a lack of adequate energy is going to really reduce their ability to obviously perform in a lot of these cases and is actually going to reduce the net calorie expenditure Mm. from this type of training. So to a certain extent, I say I've got a 60-minute tempo run. I go into that well-fueled. I'm going to burn more calories and get better performance benefit than if I go into it poorly fueled where I'll run less distance, I'll run it more slowly, you know, run it less efficiently, and I'm going to burn fewer calories. So. I think understanding that with concurrent training, especially a little more ambitious programs, the, 
training itself, the quality of the training itself rises to the level of your energy intake, obviously up to a point, you know, don't go completely crazy, but learning to utilize or, or basically saying that every, all the fuel that they're taking in is going to allow them to utilize a, you know, more, more energy stores and actually up the quality of their training. That's a, a major point that I think is frequently overlooked. So don't be afraid of eating more. If you start gaining weight like crazy, You'll probably, you'll, you know, you'll know it, but you're going to have to be in such a surplus. Even if you're doing a powerlifting and 10K program, you're still doing a lot more work than you were previously. Mm. And your body is going to need those calories. And I think people can't be afraid of it. Um, you can always adjust body composition later on. And as long as you're not going ad libitum. Yeah, yeah absolutely. To, in, how do you go about then... Um estimating somebody's caloric needs and then what do you how do you break down their macros then so for conventional diets you know we do we obviously do a lot of tracking for people right before you know what is your what is your current diet what has been your current sustainable intake and we'll typically use fairly standard run charts and i have a few in the book um, just number of you know uh, calories per hour per kilo and we'll use those as a baseline because they do tend to be pretty accurate. Um, one thing where, people where, where did you where did you get those, Alex? Oh gosh, I can pull the references for uh, for yeah, you. Yeah, no, I, um, and I don't I don't mean that in an asshole way. Now. I'm just just curious. I, I you know honestly I don't have the uh, the sources in front of me. I oh, looked at three different um you looked at three different uh, kind of more calorie calculators. One used one was actually the one used by Garmin. And back calculated a lot of it from that. And they're not obviously completely accurate. Yeah, of course. And, you know, running form, inefficiency, you know, uh, air pressure can all, you know, anything can make a difference in, yeah, yeah. in what the burn is going to be. But as a good starting point, they tend to be adequate. One thing people worry about is also the, you know, kind of constrained model of energy expenditure where you say up to a point, if you do more exercise, you're going to burn fewer calories outside of exercise because your activity level is going to be lower. That is a concern, but also if you're engaged in a concurrent training program and you're lifting weights and you're doing cardiovascular activity and everything else, you're not going to get that same decrease in general activity level. Mm -hmm. So simply replacing those burned calories tends to be fairly dead on as far as most of our calculations go. So there's really not much magic to it. The, the most important thing, though, is for conventional diets, those additional calories uh, by far, the the majority of them comes from carbohydrate sources. Mm -hmm. So we say currently you're eating 3,000 calories, you're burning 1,000 a day. Of those 1,000, 800 of them should come from carbohydrates. And that in and of itself is a little different because I think a lot of people try to maintain kind of their same ratio when they up their calories. Yeah. But there's not much reason, as long as you're getting you know adequate amounts of protein and everything else, of that 1,000 calories, 10% is going to be fat, 10% is going to be protein, 80% is going to be carbohydrates. And that's just more what that activity is burning and what it's costing your body. That extra protein is more than enough for repair. That extra fat is more than enough to maintain hormone homeostasis and vitamin, uh, you know, vitamin production and processing and everything else. The most important thing is that of that additional activity, carbohydrates are continued uh, we continue to use carbohydrates as a preferred source to serve as energy sparing for all the other macronutrients. And again, this is conventionally fueled athletes, not going like ketogenic athletes. Right now. Uh, do you find that there's a difference? Like, do, do you find you have to make a different sort of, and it, this is just generalization. Do you find that there's a difference between 
the nutritional tweaks you have to make for the strength athlete going to an endurance versus the endurance athlete going to strength. So just in my mind, like, you know, endurance athletes, some, and again, broad generalization, but sometimes they're, they're carb junkies and they don't get enough protein. So the fact that they're trying to integrate more strength training, maybe they need to, they may even need to just bump up protein a little bit. And even, you know, they take in so much carbs, maybe just, just saying in a generality, they could maybe decrease or take away a little bit of carb. Whereas maybe from, well, it depends on the part. Some powerlifters still eat a lot of carbohydrates. But, you know, some strength athletes may need to actually, could potentially maybe even slightly decrease fat, maybe protein. Oh, I said it. And need to up their carb intake. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think that's a very good point. And, you know, of course, it's interesting that, um, you know, I think the, the research has gone back and forth on protein requirements and, um, you know, uh, it used it's, to be the case. Isn't it, just, just for you got it, isn't it so funny, man, how these trends go? Like the 80s and 90s, low fat particularly the 80s low fat low fat and then in the 2000s up until like you know maybe five six years ago it was like carbs are the worst fucking things you can eat you're gonna die younger it ruins mm. your longevity and then like all these crossfit people try to do these fucking low carb diets it's like they crash and burn <laughs> because, because you spend a lot of your fucking sporting glycolysis you dumb fucks and then uh <laughs> and then and now, and now the big thing is just protein like every like i, I was in the shop there well actually this was last year but it's in the shop. I don't know if you guys have Weetabix in America. Basically, it's it's a it's like a you probably have something similar to it. It's like a biscuit, but it's made of wheat, and it's, mm-hmm. it's like it's like like a hundred percent, not hundred percent, but it's just basically like sugar once you eat it. But yeah. like they had high protein Weetabix, like everything there was about high protein. Yeah, yeah, everything in it, high protein, this high protein, that you know, or whatever. But it's just like everything else protein. So we've gone from fucking. Fat is the devil to carbs the devil to like now to get getting the adequate protein in and then now as you said it's about like well is it two grams or I you know you don't need you don't need that much protein or oh, it's just it's just it's gas. So anyway, sorry to cut across. No, but that, that, it's one of those things too where you're seeing the research is now saying well you know uh, maximum protein synthesis is slightly higher at 2.2 grams per kilo than it is at 1.8 grams per kilo. I'm going, you know the <laughs> you know the it's. How much, how much is actually needed to, to maximize performance? And, uh, you know, I think for most of our athletes, we generally just say there's a range. We could give them exact macronutrients. Yeah, but, yeah. The, you know, the, 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 I think the fact of the matter is there are very few individuals who are going to say, well, you know what? I really feel much better ever since I dropped 10 grams of carbs and added 10 grams of protein to my diet. It's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So we generally give, you know, kind of a, a, a range for protein that tends to be fairly reasonable. Um, you're, and you're right. I think a lot of endurance don't endurance athletes don't like protein, but as you mentioned, it's very difficult to not get enough. Yeah, true. just with the way it's thrown into every single supplement at this point. Mm. And you know, I, I think when we, it used to be, I would say about I would say about six to eight years ago, you used to have endurance athletes who'd show me their diets, and it's like eighty-two percent carbohydrates. And you're like, how do you even do that? Yeah. You know, you're sitting there like drinking maple syrup out of the bottle. Like, what are you, what are you doing? Yeah. And you know, now when I see it, even the ones that are relatively lower in protein will still have diets that are anywhere from 15 to 20% plus protein. And, you know, still falling in that 1.5 grams per kilo, 1.8 grams per kilo, which with the lifting on top of it is actually fairly adequate. Uh, you know, I don't really see an issue. So the hardest thing I think on their side, it's, it's not hard to tell them to take in a little more protein and just, you know, throw in an extra you know, shake or glass of milk yeah, or something yeah. along those lines. It is much harder to get the strength athlete away from protein, especially because, you know, I say, well, you know, you're going to need to eat a bit more. Oh yeah. You know, so I, I had another protein bar. No, yeah. 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 It's not going to do it. <laughs> so, you know, basically 
telling, challenging people to find carbohydrate sources that are not protein sources and that are not fat sources is very challenging. Um, it's easier for people in the endurance world because there's so many supplements that are still heavily carb biased. And, you know, endurance athletes always talk at great length about a lot of their carb favorite meals, whereas strength athletes much less unless they're talking about, uh, you know, eating pancakes after weigh-ins for powerlifting meat. So that's, that's the biggest challenge we found is how do we challenge people from the strength world to incorporate additional easily digested carbohydrates beyond just telling them to eat an extra bowl of rice. Okay, uh, that's fantastic stuff. What I want to tackle here, uh, we haven't got too much, too much uh, left. Um, just some of the myths that come about uh, regards to concurrent training. Um, I know one of your favorites is, you know, strength people saying, oh, if I start doing all this aerobic work, I'm going to lose all my gains. I'm going to shrivel and lose my size and oh. I'm, going to get, I'm going to get weak. So could you maybe just dispel that myth and maybe go on to talk about uh, what are some of the potential benefits of, um, well, I mean, we could talk about both here, but I mainly want to talk about more about the strength athlete, you know, the more, I suppose, bodybuilder type athlete. What, what, is, what is the benefit of incorporating some aerobic work into their training programs? And then if you want to also address, like, why it is beneficial then on the other end of that spectrum for the endurance people to incorporate strength training. I think that's a little more accepted nowadays, but yeah, if you want to tackle that question. Yeah, so I think the, the biggest thing when it comes to myths is that, like you said, you're going to lose your gains. I think one of the biggest reasons that's perpetuated, though, I think is the type of training a lot of people do. And we see this a lot with our military clients, is that they come to us and say, I want to get better at the 1.5 mile run for my PT test or, you know, whatever challenge it happens to be. We say, well, what's your training been? They say, well, you know, I just run two miles hard every day and I try to run it harder and faster each time. That's the problem. Um, that is the most energetically costly and least efficient and effective when it comes to adaptations of endurance training. When you do endurance training, it is all about having a specific objective to each workout. You are either improving your aerobic base, which is going to be at such a relatively low intensity that you're not, you're not burning any muscle while you do that. You're not compromising your strength. You're not compromising your recovery. You can easily compensate for that calorically. Or you're doing your specific form and tempo work, which should make up a small percentage of your training. Or you're doing high-intensity sprint or speed type work, which the cost to muscle tissue there is going to be minimal because in some cases it can even build it. So when people say, oh, you know, cardio is going to make me lose my gains, it's probably because they're doing the wrong kind of cardio. Mm. The objective is to use modalities and durations and intensities that either require, that don't use the same energy systems at all, which is the long, slow distance, and don't compromise recovery or your ability to perform well in the gym. When you see a properly integrated program like that, that actually uses intelligent cardiovascular training, you don't see that issue. When you have people simply say, oh, well, yeah, you know, I was running two miles every day and suddenly I couldn't squat anymore and, you know, my strength started going down and my legs started getting smaller and my arms started getting smaller. And you're saying, well, yeah, it's because you're overtaxing your recovery because you're doing these middle-of-the-road nonsense workouts that are compromising your recovery. They're draining your muscle glycogen. They're consuming far too much psychological and mental intensity and you've burned out. So... It'll, yes, if you do it wrong, it'll, it'll cost you your gains. If you do it right and intelligently, it won't. And the benefits are huge. Um, you know, when you talk about general aerobic capacity and work capacity, um, your recovery in between bouts of anaerobic activity is dictated by your aerobic systems. Um, you know, ATP, glycogen, all of that, those require 
the use of oxygen, those require aerobic metabolism to recover from. If you have a strong aerobic system, you will replenish glycogen faster, you will replenish ATP faster, you will mentally, physically be more prepared. The faster your heart rate drops after a given maximum effort, the faster your heart rate and respiration drops after a given effort, even if it tends to be like a heavy set of squats, the sooner you will be able to engage the sooner you'll be able to brace yourself again, the sooner you'll be prepared to do the next set. If we can improve the ability of an athlete, a strength athlete, to perform more work in a smaller amount of time and more high quality work in a smaller amount of time, fatigue less over the course of a workout, engage in, do more sets at a given level of intensity, and that lifter gets on the platform, having done 20% more productive work over the last training cycle than the other person because of a better developed aerobic system, they're gonna win. I mean, and that's, that's what it comes down to is mm. we aerobic conditioning helps strength athletes do more productive work. More productive work means better results. Yeah. I, I always use the example of Charlie Francis high low model. So when anyone ever comes at me with that, I'm like, you do realize that like the second fastest human being of all time did like uh, a lot of aerobic training. <laughs> so, you know, like Ben Johnson did tons of tempo training. See what, well, well, again, you touched on it there. It's like, because you read like Ishran's book where he says alactic and aerobic abilities actually go well together. They're compatible. And then like, you know, that confuses people because people go, well, I, I thought like a lot of aerobic work killed strength gains and hypertrophy. So how do like a, alactic and aerobic qualities go well together? And it's like, because there's a threshold. <laughs> it's yeah. like the doses, the, 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 it's the doses, the dosage that makes the poison. So it's like, I can kill you with water for fuck's sake. If you, if yeah. you, if you, if you do it wrong, you know what I mean? So it's yeah. the same with aerobic training when it comes to strength, when it comes to hypertrophy strength or power training in that there's a threshold. So like if you do too much volume with too much intensity in terms of aerobic work, while well, you concurrently go after hypertrophy strength and power gains. Yeah. Then there's going to be, there's going to be a, a, a detriment and there's going to be some confusion within the system in terms of the body, like in terms of what adaptations you're seeking. But as you said, you know, as long as it's, it's nearly like, again, you need to look at a spectrum at one end of the spectrum is like really low intensity aerobic activities. And at the other end is like really high intensity anaerobic activities. If you can keep that spectrum pretty wide, you're going to be okay. It's when you start getting towards the middle then and start crossing thresholds, then the, the, the waters start to get a bit, the water starts to get a bit muddy and then yep. there's going to be some non-compatibility going on. So, but yeah, mm -hmm. that, that's the example I use. Um, actually question that, that came to mind that I, I, that I thought in my head today when I said, when I was thinking I've interviewed Alex today, yes, I'm looking forward to this. Uh, cause it's gone and it's gone as, as good as I thought. Uh, your programming, uh, Alex. So I know that you have a, you have a fairly, um, uh, regimented isn't the word I'm trying to go, but you have a very logical, that'd be the word, very logical macro cycle setup when it comes to um, consolidating the stressors of the volumes and intensities that needed to be taken into consideration throughout the week when it comes to like the strength work and then the endurance type work. So could you maybe give us an example of how you program and manage a concurrent training program? Sure. So, uh, you know, on the, on the macro side, uh, you know, the, the macro cycle side, obviously what we're, what we're looking for is kind of selective peaking uh, for each type of event. And of course, depending on the activities you want to engage in, there's a kind of a yearly cycle where certain events are more popular sometimes a year than others. So we, the, the first thing of course is planning when our off seasons are going to be and when our peaking seasons are for each. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned, the, that middle zone of training for endurance is the worst for strength gains. So of course that middle zone is also where a lot of things like 5k and 10k races tend to be. 
So if somebody wants to engage in those kind of events, we need to specifically, first of all, when we plan the year, plan out where those areas are going to be and make sure that we allow ample time in the lead up to those to basically put the strength progressions on hold since we know recovery is going to be compromised then. So that's the main thing. Any sort of mid-duration event that's going to require that kind of tempo work needs to kind of have its own place in the macro cycle. Um, the next thing, as you said, is consolidation of, well, the next thing is talking about base building and how base building involves anything, essentially building a larger foundation for which the kind of secondary derived characteristics of performance are based on. For strength, that means hypertrophy work mm. and form work and that kind of stuff. That's the off-season. That is the base for strength work. And for endurance work, it's the aerobic systems. Um, you know, VO2 max, lactate threshold, a lot of those things are effectively capped by the size of the aerobic base. You improve the aerobic base, you don't necessarily improve your VO2 max, but you improve, you put a higher limit on your possible attainable VO2 max. Mm -hmm. So the off cycle, you know, when it comes to the micro cycle and we say, okay, the way we structure each training week is we do all the high intensity work at the beginning of the week. We do our, you know, max effort, squat, deadlift, bench press, press, overhead press, snatch, clean and jerk, whatever. And then we do our sprint work there too. This is all low energy substrate utilization. It's high mental engagement. It's high physiological stress on the bones. We're going to do this in one part of the week because each one of those systems has a recovery cost. Let's put together all the same systems that will have all the same recovery costs at one point of the week. Then as the week continues, we move into much more of the volume work. And by the end of the week, everything is going to be hypertrophy work and long, slow distance work. The reason for that is all of that is going to be much heavier on energy substrates, but require much, much less mental arousal and momentary aggression or any of those things that we want to tap into for the, for the high intensity work. The objective there is to basically say each system of the body, um, you know, energy substrates, uh, bone recovery, uh, connective tissue, muscle recovery, uh, psychological engagement, neurological arousal, you know, all these things, each one has its own recovery cost and its own recovery time. Let's simplify this by consolidating every type of training that utilizes similar areas, similar buckets of resources. All of that then goes into the larger macro cycle and that entire micro cycle will become more tailored towards long, slow distance work with a much smaller amount of high intensity work, effectively putting high intensity work just in maintenance during the off season when we're trying to build the base. And as we move more towards competitive season, we move more into the peaking work. Suddenly that high intensity work increases in time and duration. The suddenly form work becomes a much more critical part of the training week. And the base building work becomes a much smaller, almost truncated section at the very end of the micro cycle. So that same framework, that same high intensity to, you know, high to low intensity and then low to high volume modifies as each continuous, as each mesocycle and in fact an entire micro, a macro cycle goes on over the course of the year. Just a question here. Have you had to peak somebody concurrently for a powerlifting event and an endurance event like this, so they were going to happen at the same time? Or is it more often not do you encourage people to say, like, maintain strength, peak for this endurance event, and then schedule your powerlifting meet here and we'll maintain the aerobic qualities, now we'll go after the strength qualities. Like, is, is, like, have you had to ever do both? Or, like, mm -hmm. 
we have to do it all the time because we encourage people not to, but everyone wants to say, oh, I did a powerlifting meet on Saturday and I ran yeah, a 10 yeah, yeah. on Sunday. I'm, so I'm how, how, do you, how do you deal with that? <laughs> um, usually I'll have a couple glasses of scotch and question my life decisions. And then, <laughs> then, the, uh, then the next thing is really, it's um, the, the, the hardest thing about that is understanding that compromises are going to have to be yeah, made yeah. in performance of the second event. And a lot of what we will then do is, for example, for the, for the endurance portion, we do what we call kind of a uh, moderation of expectations and understanding that they're not going to be able to do the tempo work that they should have otherwise have done mm. uh, to let them maximize. We're not going to be able to do a lot of that mid-duration, you know, for example, they're training for a 10K. We're not going to be able to do a lot of those four to six mile runs at tempo or three to five mile runs at pace that they're going to need. So we tend to do a lot of pacing practice, isolated pacing practice leading up to these things. Um, Since we can't ingrain a pace through extended runs, we have to ingrain it through much more frequent short duration tempo work. So the way we get around it is rather than saying, okay, you're going to have your two tempo runs during the week, which we'd normally do or three tempo runs even, during the week leading into this race, what we're going to do is we're going to intersperse. We're going to remove most of the high intensity and low intensity work for the last three to four weeks of the training cycle leading into your powerlifting meet. And instead we're going to do five by three minute repeats at your target race pace or five by two minute repeats at your target race pace. So by getting even more specific to the training challenge than most training cycles would ever be, you know, you're not going to see too many run training cycles that lead that finish with you know three to four weeks of intervals at race pace but that's what we have to do because we don't have that time we don't have the luxury of being able to do a conventional program leading into it so yeah so that's we we tend to see that and of course if you're doing three four weeks of that you're losing out on some of the fitness that you're building Mm. so we basically tell people look if you want to do this at the same time just know that the last three to four months or sorry three to four weeks of your run training are not going to build any fitness so if you think you have 16 weeks to improve your time before your next 10K, but you're doing a powerlifting meet that same week, you really only have 12 weeks to improve your fitness. Wherever you're at at that 12 week, that's going to dictate your performance for this run. Great stuff. All right, getting into a few uh, quick fire uh, questions. Now your, your answers can be as long as you want, but uh, they're just a little more sort of, uh, you know, to finish out the show. I like, sure. I, and it, these are kind of questions I like to ask everyone because, uh, uh, I like to get really interesting people on and because they're interesting, I want to ask them these questions to get their answers. So uh, first one for you, how do you learn? Um, by going down rabbit holes. Uh, <laughs> those, fucking, it, those fucking rabbits. Fucking rabbits. Yeah, no, my, my way of learning is, you know, I like to, I like to see other people's application of ideas and then I like to work backwards and find out how they got to them. Um, you know, kind of like you said, I'll, I'll, I'll listen to something or I'll see a new idea presented and I will, I I like to look at their progression of thought and then independently see how I could come to that conclusion. So if if somebody presents me with a topic or I, I watch a lecture on something or I I listen to a podcast on something or I read an article on something, um, my way of learning more is not by finding more articles on the topic. It's saying, well, where did they get this conceptual idea from? And then I'll take a look at what the background is, what the question is that they asked, and I'll try to answer the question myself. And I, I'm very much a, a learner by reading. Mm, um, me too. I spend, 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, I said, like going down the rabbit hole, you know, you, you look at when I, where an idea originated and you look at, you, so you look at what the, the idea was that caused them to come to that conclusion. And you look at what led to that idea. And you look at where that idea came from. And you look at where that idea came from. And you start to tease apart the underpinnings. And that's, in the process of doing that, that's how I develop my own ideas. And that's how I develop my own ways to go about things. So it's sort of like, you know, somebody hands you, a, somebody, hand, somebody says, here, have a look at this car and figure out how it works. And you just start pulling it apart and looking at how a fuel pump was developed and look at how spark plugs were developed. And then you go back from that and then you start building your own constructions and seeing what they are. So they're influenced by others, but you're never taking anybody else's final product. You're trying to develop your own. And just in terms of, you know, you said you like to read, uh, are you a highlighter, a, a note taker? Do you like to be on a whiteboard? Uh, like, how do you consolidate your knowledge? And, and just for the answer, for me personally, I read, I use the little highlight stickers. I don't actually use a highlight marker because I always just fuck up books when I do that, like starts blotting through pages. But mm-hmm. usually I'll, I'll highlight and then I'll write out notes. And then if I really want to consolidate it, I'll actually make a PowerPoint presentation, even if I'm not going to give it. I'm just mm-hmm. I, as if I had to present it to a class because for me, teaching is the best way to consolidate or have a conversation about it with someone. So if exactly. I was reading, if I was reading a book and I'd say, Alex, I'm reading this book and these are the concepts in it, it, it ingrains, it ingrains it in my head. Anytime I learn anything, I try to have a discussion with somebody about it. doesn't matter even if they're only tangentially interested in it. Uh, <laughs> Sometimes oh, they're chagrin. Yeah, I don't, I don't tell, I just say, yeah. I, tell my, I tell my parents about like mad obscure books and they're like, oh, that's great, honey. Yeah, but in the process of articulating it, you, you suddenly learn it. I find that if I read something a dozen times, I can just gloss over it. Mm. If I read something once and then try to explain it to somebody or have them look at the same thing and say, hey, this is interesting. Here, check this out. And in the process of explaining it, that information becomes ingrained. Yeah, yeah. That is but- by far the best way. Yeah, that's uh This is gonna sound a bit like uh like so funny. Like people always say, to, like say, to me, oh, you're you're really smart. You must read laws, and I do read a lot, but I'm not actually. I'm actually a dumb bastard. Like I need to read things over and over. <laughs> like so, like and the reason I bring that up is is just to preface what, what I'm about to say here. Like it took me so long to understand Newton's three laws of motion, and it was only when like you know people were like, uh, you know, like I had to explain them to people. I was like, like I was like, all right, I understand it's law of inertia, law of acceleration, and action reaction, but it's like. I don't know how to explain them yet. And then I was like, oh, inertia, you know, it's a, it's a body or object's mass resistance to change. And, you know, it just stays at a constant state until it's acted upon by an external source. So, like, then that, that, made, that started to make sense. And then, you know, acceleration, force signs, ma- forces, mass acceleration. But, like, even though I knew that, I was like, how do I explain this? Oh, well, mass is constant. And then the amount of force on the mass will dictate the acceleration. Like, oh, now I'm starting to understand. But it just tells you, like, I, 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 I kind of understood them. But if you say, yeah. well, what do they mean? I was like, I actually don't know. So it was when people actually asked me to, like, explain to them. I was like, I had to go back. And that's what made me learn them. And again, consolidate yeah. that knowledge. So teach yeah, them. The, the, the process of understanding something to the point where you can explain it and convey what's important. Mm. You disassemble the idea and then reassemble it and repackage it. In the process of doing so, you learn it. Yeah. Better than just reading it over and over and over again. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, a day in your life. So what, what's a typical day look like for you? And within that day, are there any particular habits or routines that you just, you, you have to do every day? And, um, for me personally, like, uh, exercise is always an epicenter in my day Um, walking. I do a lot of uh, reading, reading in the morning and morning walks, I think are like 
critical for me personally uh, am sunlight and, and so for me it would be reading walking am sunlight and exercise kind of like my epicenters for the day anchors if you like so uh, first thing i do when i wake up and i always wake up a good hour before my alarm which doesn't seem to be great but i usually sit down and i know this sounds uh, you know some people might say oh how could you do that but i'll usually simply start to browse social media and i'll try to find one interesting discussion oh. and i'll find an interesting discussion and I'll investigate it and read through some of the sources and say, okay, here's what people are talking about today. Here's what people are interested in. And I will go look at this. And in the course of, you know, basically until my alarm goes off, try to become enough of an expert in this idea that I can articulate the concept to somebody else. That is so interesting. Well, and it's just, it, it started out. I didn't even realize I was doing it until I suddenly was doing this for months and months and months. And you know, it's, it's interesting because then even before I'm supposed to quote unquote, be out of bed, I said, oh, you know what? I've learned something today. I've in involved myself or engrossed myself in something that is relevant to everybody else. So already I get in the mindset of the day of saying, okay, I've learned something. I kind of have my finger on the pulse of what people are interested in today, and that's how I start. Hmm. And you know, breakfast, coffee, I usually spend the morning just doing programming for all my clients. I'll sit down. You know, In the morning, I tend to be very methodical in my thought process. Not the most creative, but I know I'm more methodical in the morning and actually more numerically strong. So it's much easier for me to do my programming in the morning, look at, you know, sets, repetition ranges, uh, you know, setting running thresholds, things like that. Spend a couple hours doing that. Um, you know, handle a couple of emails. Training always happens around 1.30 to 2 o'clock, which is a luxury I know a lot of people don't have. Um, always a weight training session, always some sort of cardiovascular training. Um, the amount varies very much depending on what day it is. Yeah. If it's a long, slow run day, the weight training session may be absolutely minimal. And um, then the afternoon tends to be anything involving emails or you know, any sort of presentation or thought development or article writing, things that are much more kind of creative and engaging and uh, you know, kind of shifting things in that direction. Uh, so I just kind of, you know, I let, I let the, the day kind of flow like that with you know, information and, and, and quantitative work in the beginning of the day and kind of the softer skill stuff at the end of the day. So, and that's, and that's the general flow, you know, I'm, I, I tend to be kind of winding down and you know, mostly in bed by about nine thirty or 10 o'clock. Sweet. So what, what has been or have been the biggest lessons you've learned so far in your life? Um, being the smartest one in the room doesn't mean a damn thing. Um, you can learn something from anybody. Mm. And you should learn something from everybody. Um, and I, I think part of this was related to, I thought I was a really smart kid and I went to Duke University, which is a good university. And I thought I just, you know, like, like most 20 year old kids, you think you know everything. And years after that, I worked as a paramedic. I, you know, spent a lot of time, you know, fiddling around with cars and speaking to mechanics. And I think, realizing that there is such a wealth of information that I think we shut ourselves out from because we may deem somebody's specific education as less. Mm. We may discard their experience because it doesn't jive with what we read in the book. And I think realizing that every human being on earth has something they can teach you, um, I think was one of the biggest things. And it also, it, it kind of prompted me to realize that I needed to, if I couldn't convey complex concepts to somebody, it's not because they're not smart. It's because I'm not smart enough to articulate it properly. Mm -hmm. 
And that's always kind of been a focus of, of how I've tried to teach and how I've tried to explain is saying, if I can't take this idea and explain it in crystal clear language, that's my fault. Mm-hmm. That's because I don't understand it well enough. And so the lesson that's been taught over and over again is when I've been an ineffective communicator and, and haven't conveyed ideas, it's not because of my audience, it's because of me. And learning that over and over again and realizing that people are smarter than you give them credit for, don't shortchange them by providing them you know, watered down information. Give them the credit to give them the background and don't insult their intelligence. The lack of intelligence is going to be in your poor presentation, if it's anything. How did you come to the awareness that you can learn something from everyone? And, and just, just before I answer that, I read this book called The Celestine Prophecy, and that was one of the major takeaways in that, that, you, that you, every interaction you're meant to have was because you were meant to learn something from that, whether it be good, bad, or indifferent. I was actually on a scuba diving trip in Cancun, Mexico. I was sorry, it's Cozumel, um, ages ago, uh, very young at the time. And I was at the dive shop and the, uh, you know, the, the guy just handing out fins and everything else. Um, I was sitting there, I was just hanging out. Uh, my dad was coming down. It was 45 minutes before we were supposed to meet. I forget why I was there early. And this individual, people would come up to him and speak to him like he was an idiot. Um, he was a local, very unassuming looking, you know, just kind of wearing a ratty t-shirt. Um, you know, just... Uh, not, you know, obviously very different looking from the tourists. Every single tourist would come down to him and again, speak to him in very slow, deliberate language. And he would answer them back very articulately, very clearly, you know, and I realized that this individual who I thought was just the guy managing the shop, first of all, in the time I sat there, I watched him speak fluently five different languages to people who came down. Holy shit. And not a single one of them realized that that wasn't his, that, you know, it, it, he wasn't just bilingual. The man spoke seven languages. They didn't realize that because they only ever interacted with him in one language. And this guy was just handing out fins and people would go to him thinking that this is just the, you know, cabana boy handing out fins. He spoke seven languages and also happened to be the dive master. So, you know, he obviously understood the basics of physics. He understood a lot of the science involved. Um, you know, his, his education may not have been tremendous formally, but this was an individual who had accumulated years and years of mastery in these topics, obviously very intelligent, obviously had seen and known a lot. And I realized that I came down there, I think I was like a 16, 17 year old kid at the time thinking, eh, it's just a cabana boy. And realizing that this individual in so many ways outstripped my level of experience and intellect and everything else. And it was by, by true definition of the word, it was humbling. Because I realize it is so easy to underestimate people. And every time you do that, and you know, talking to him later on the boat, the experiences he had were phenomenal. And his understanding of scuba diving and his sort of acquired knowledge of physics and marine biology and everything else was astronomical. If I hadn't engaged him, there is so much I would have missed out on in that topic just by assuming he was just the you know, little, little cabana guy. And I, you know, I think that was one of those moments where I was like, man, you know, I, I really you know, I, I have to stop being such an egotistical little bastard and, uh, you know, learning that over and over and over again in every field. And you do, you, you get a much greater appreciation, I think, for, for the complexities that people have to offer. Yeah. Humility is something you just earn over time. It comes with wisdom. Yeah. Yep. Um, your top resources. Um, so, uh, and a resource could be anything now. It could be a book, it could be a video, an audio, a podcast, a course, an individual. What would your top resource be to, to any individual to, to upgrade or potentially improve their lives? 
Oof. Um, to improve their lives or something, we're talking about something uh, more industry related. Anything, any, anything at all. This question's very broad, very general. Oh, some, some people like to be specific and give like training books or people like go, you know, way esoteric with it. It's, I, I like just a, re, a resource that could just help somebody in, in any aspect of their life. Um, this is going to be odd and it's something that may, uh, may resonate with a couple of people who know just, what I've been up to just, lately. Just so you know, you're, t- you're talking to me, so nothing's odd. A book on project management, I think would be the biggest thing any individual can Okay. do for their own self-development. Um, and I learned this working back in pharma. Project management is basically the ability to break down any goal, no matter how big or whole, how small, into manageable tasks, how to set appropriate goals, appropriate timelines, how to track progress, how to understand the difference between a critical, a critical milestone and a less critical milestone. Um, you can apply those skills to pretty much anything you do in life, whether it is from building a business, whether you're developing a training program, whether you're training for a race, um, whether you're managing your personal finances, personal interactions, any long-term or short-term plan. If you take project management skills and apply it to that, your outcomes will be better. You will have an immediate sense of where you are in the process. Uh, you will not panic, uh, you know, because you'll know at any given point what your resources are, what your timelines are, what your budget are. That is the most priceless thing I can tell anybody in any business to actually get themselves into. And if you happen to know a good project manager in your life, make very good friends with them and <laughs> try to keep them available. That's a, uh, that's, that's a savage answer. That's an unbelievable piece of advice. And again, it just goes back to, you said the key word there, principles. When you learn the principles of any particular domain, it's usually because it's a set of principles, it's usually applicable universally mm-hmm. you know principles yep. that's that's a great answer um you're so yeah before you leave this planet what would your top life advice be currently currently so obviously please uh, i say please god but anyway, please universe whatever your belief is but like you have many 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 years left um in this experience we call life but if you were to 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 have to part tomorrow I'm not saying you will what what life advice would you would you leave the world with Oh gosh, um, it's hard not to say something extraordinarily cheesy as well. Yeah, and the the one thing I, I'd say about this too is I think a lot of people are like, oh fuck, like I've nothing prepared, and they're like, oh I want I want to sound like really good here. I'm always just like, listen, just be authentic in the moment, like because what no no matter what happens, you'll all, you'll you'll never be happy with your answer. You'll it's like the yeah. it's like the you know, the comeback to uh, to somebody who who like gave you a joke or a slag. Damn, if I said that, it would be just so perfect. Yeah, I. You know, I don't be a dick. <laughs> I think that's, yeah. And, and that's, but, but that applies to so many things, you know, be, don't be a dick, be nice, be humble, leave people better than you found them, you know, and, and it's Brilliant. just, Brilliant. The, the, it's the best thing for personal development too. It's like Jim Jeffries, the Australian comedian, you know, he has this joke with the Bible where he's like, the Bible is just too fucking wordy. He goes, if I wrote a Bible, you know how long it would be? It'd be one page. And on that page, it would say, don't be a cunt. <laughs> Exactly. I love that. I know, sorry, I know there's people that don't like that word, but that is what Jim said. Um, last few here now, and, and uh, that's it then. Um, what was my next one going to be? We did a voice. Oh, yes. Your top and current book recommendations. So what are you currently reading? And then what's the top book you would give away as a gift? If I could give away, oh, my God. Um, uh, my book, no. Um, God, the hybrid, the hybrid, which will be linked up in the show notes. <laughs> Um, 
gosh, I think the uh, right now I'm reading a book on long range shooting, so I'm not really sure that that's really relevant or valid. <laughs> um, also, for a book on knife throwing, that's really good. You know where um, Alex stands on Second Amendment? <laughs> Oh, that's a that's a nuanced topic indeed. Um, there is a nutrition book, a nutrition textbook by Groper that is just oh. fantastic. Um, it is basically all about the basic physiology and nutrition, and it gets into great detail on uh, you know vitamins, minerals, pathways, and everything else. What I love about it is that it's such a just clear, concise um, refresher on everything. And I refer back to it frequently because I think one of the most important things for you know any professionals, for, certainly in this field, is to never forget the basics yeah. and never get so drawn into the new shiny that they forget the foundations. And, um, you know, I think it's, you know, like when you see a, when you see a doctor with all these books on the, you know, basic anatomy, physiology, you think, ah, that's ridiculous. You know, obviously, you know this stuff, but it's it's true. It's always don't forget the basics. Don't forget where you learned lessons yeah. in the first place, and don't don't discard what you know in favor of what sounds cool at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what was what's the exact name of that book? Oh my gosh, I would have to look it up. I may even just have to show it in the notes because it's one of these. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you can you can send it to me through email afterwards. It's no problem. Okay, cool. Yeah, because it's one of those where I don't want to give the uh, wrong name, and it's it's not a very sexy uh, sexy nutrition book. That's great. That's great. Okay, so, uh, so the final two, these are big ones. Um, so for whatever reason, you have 365 days left on planet Earth. I, I used to word this as if like you're going to be dead in one year, but then I was like, it's a bit a little bit sensitive. So I just say you've got one, one more year left on Earth because we're going to Mars then, okay? <laughs> you're still, but you, you've only 365 days left on Earth. How would you spend that last year? Uh you know, honestly, I I probably wouldn't change much. I love, I get, I love hearing that answer. When people I, I mean, as it stands, what I do now, I get to I get to explore new places. I get to climb mountains. I get to train. I get to speak with interesting people. You know, I, I get to do Th- everything. Thanks, thanks, Alex. You said it was interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> especially you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I, you know, because that's that's a big part of it. Like you know, it's. Uh, I'm, I'm at my happiest when I'm doing what I, what I enjoy doing day to day. And I, I think if I only had a year left, I would just make it more of what I love. So Great. what would that be to change? Okay. Last one. I love this one. I love people to answer this. We're going for dinner. And I say to you, Alex, you can bring five people to dinner, right? And they can be dead or alive. I've got magical powers. Who are you going to bring to this dinner and why are you going to bring them? Um, let's see. Who would I bring to dinner? Uh, man, I could say some really like scandalous things here. Uh, you, you can say whatever you want. What it is my podcast? You can say whatever you want. Oh my gosh! Because ah. there are some people I'd love to bring to dinner just so I could stab them with a steak knife, but that that wouldn't necessarily be the most uh, the most productive. I would bring. Oh, oh Lord! You really put me on the spot with this. Yeah, I love this question. Oh gosh! Remember that there's, okay. no, there's, no, there's no right or wrong, and you're always welcome to change your answer like afterwards. Okay, um, I would bring Robin Williams. Brilliant. I would bring. Let's see. I would bring Donald Trump. Okay. Bordering on the steak knife issue right there. Yeah. yeah. Um, I would bring. Theodore Roosevelt. 
Oh, I like it. I like it. Um, I, like I think it. most of uh, yeah. I love a bit of TR. Yeah, he, he he's an interesting fellow. Um, probably Alexander the Great. Mm. And God, who else would I want to speak to? Gosh, ah, oh, maybe Elon Musk. Okay, yeah, I like that. Yeah, and not because I necessarily like these people, but I think that would just be such a, a good cross section of people who may not get along with each other at all. Yeah, it'd be interesting and to see TR and Trump, wouldn't it? That that would that see that's the fascinating one to me because Robin Williams would just take the piss. He'd be just doing Trump impressions all the time. That that was kind of the thinking there as well. <laughs> he'd, he'd add some humor into it. Well, because I mean, you know, when you say who do you want to get to dinner with, it's always a combination of what what humans would I want to see interact with each other. Yeah. Even if it's not, you know, anything that's relevant to me, I just I like seeing how different, you know, various dominant personalities who are each dominant in a very different way get when you get them together in one spot. I think T.R. and Robin Williams will get on so well. I can envision the two of them like wrestling. Yeah. Yeah. Because apparently like, T.R. used to like wrestle people and all like. You know, one of, the, one of the things I loved about TR was um, just when he, uh, you know, the, the whole like National Parks Act and everything else, and he's obviously a huge fan of the outdoors, and how he and John Muir were both opposite ends of the spectrum. One was a hardcore conservationist, the other was a hardcore hunter, and they had every reason to hate each other. And they got together and they actually accomplished something absolutely beautiful and absolutely brilliant in what they do with National Parks. And I think that was just such a, you know, such a kind of you know, pivotal moment. and says a lot, I think, about Theodore Roosevelt, as well as it does about Muir. But just that, that mindset that you can be such a, a strong personality, and, but still very open-minded to something that should be antithetical to your thinking and somehow find a middle ground. What I love about a lot of the American presidents, but with T.R. and Figler, is like that sort of like paradox about them. You know, so mm -hmm. he was so much for like the, the middle-class man and labor rights. You know, obviously he busted up the fucking the major conglomerates back in his time, like the bankers and all that, uh, he, he would be mortified with the fucking 2008 crash. He would have went in and bust some shit up. But, mm -hmm. uh, but then at the same time, you know, he still was big on like American imperialism, you know, like the Panama Canal and like just going into South America and like taking over places like, uh, you know, it was almost like a, a paradox and a conflict there mm -hmm. or, or, you know, like a, um, a bit of a hypocrite in that regard, you know, and because it's similar too when you look at like Woodrow Wilson, who did who did do, do a lot again for like middle class and sort of labor rights, and but then like was a disaster president for the blacks, yeah. and was again someone who kind of wanted to impose America's will across the world again to a certain yeah. degree, you know, like he was all about democracy around the world, like you know World War One, and you know he wanted to fucking bring in um, uh, the League of Nations. And mm -hmm. then at the same, you know, an equality for all. And it's like, but like, he was brutal then with blacks and civil rights. You know, it's, it's like, it's, it's funny, you know. It's like, listen, you go on the Vietnam War trying to bring democracy and fight off communism and yet civil rights is going back at home back in the 60s. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's mad, like, it's mad. But yeah, TR is so interesting. And because uh, I studied a lot of American presidents and it's always, it would have been interesting to see if he actually had, not said he wouldn't run for that second, for his own second term, you know, and yeah. he, he would have done that. That, that that term that Taft it wouldn't interest you in America would ended up then but well, uh, he's a legend uh, alright in some regards yeah I think I think the, the 
underlying reason all of these guys were chosen was because in many ways they're paradoxes. Yeah. You know, Elon Musk is this, you know, in some ways, some people see him as a philanthropist, other people see him as the ultimate in ego and, you know, money grubbing and, you know, et cetera. So Alexander the Great, you know, people saw him as a, as a, as a conqueror and, you know, many ways very brutal, but also his emphasis on, you know, in some cases, respect of, of mm. knowledge and learning and understanding. Theodore Roosevelt, you know, also his blend of contradiction. So I think a lot of these people are just very interesting because yeah, yeah. you can look at them through either lens and depending on who's observing them, they see them in a very, very different light, yeah. sometimes very contradictory light. And I think those people are interesting because they tend to be the most nuanced when you actually speak to them. See, everyone, everyone wants their heroes just to be flawless, but it, that's just not the case. And then, in fact, it is much better that they're not because it makes them more relatable and human, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Uh, like, I, I personally, just from my study of the individual, I, I really had a lot of time for JFK, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Like, I always tell people, listen, go back and study the Cuban, miss- the Cuban Missile Crisis, and without that man, we would be in a very different world right now. Yeah. Like, to hold his calm in that room where, generals, where, where where he knew there was people in that room who thought he wasn't a legit president, thought he was some kid, like, kick-started up kid, like, who just his dad got him into the White House. To be able to fucking have the wherewithal to be like, yeah, I, I don't think I agree with you people. <laughs> I'm not going to throw the first bomb here and fucking kill the world, you know. I thought, like, I think it's a fascinating story, you know, that, yes. um, you know, just all that, you know, and Lincoln's a great study too, obviously, with all that. But listen, uh, Alex, I'm not going to lie to you. This has been one of my favorite podcasts, and I just fucking hope that I got this audio nailed down. It sounds good. <laughs> like, you sound clear. I sound clear in my headphones. Yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm hoping that it recorded it well. But this has actually been one of my favorite podcasts for a while. It's been one of me wanting to do because ever since I have come across your work and we've been lucky enough to meet each other face-to-face twice when you were in Ireland, and I was always like, yeah, that's a, that's a guy I can relate to, and I resonate with an awful lot. So, listen, I'm, I'm so happy you came on, and I really appreciate you making so much time. Same. Likewise. I had a really good time. Really good chat. I, like I said, I appreciate especially the end topics there and being able to get into a lot more of the, you know, kind of a little bit more of the philosophy and discussion. So thank you for that. Man, if you ever want to come back on and just wrap on that, I'm happy to talk politics and philosophy and history. I, like, it's funny. I always, I'm kind of like that Dan, Dan Faft, who's, who's one of my mentors and a world famous coach. He, he always says that if you, if you didn't, if it wasn't track and field, he would have been a history teacher. And I, I think that possibly would have been where I would have ended up ended up as well I love history yeah same same so Alex uh, pe- people, where can people find you just uh, wrapping up there your resources and your website and I'll have all that in yeah. the show notes yeah uh, completehumanperformance.com best place to find us um, plenty of free articles uh, all our coaching services and templates we've got as well or you can follow me on Instagram every now and then at alex.viata every now and then I'll do little Instagram Sweet. stories that have some information on them. So for the listeners, that's going to be all linked up in the show notes, every resource. And just finally wrapping up, if there is anyone out there who is looking to complete like their first marathon, triathlon, half marathon, 5K, 10K, or a powerlift to meet if you're coming from the joint end, you know, if you're someone who's looking to do something in a concurrent uh, training scheme, I've had a number of friends sign up to complete uh, human performance and, and, um, have used Alex and his team services and have nothing but good things to say about it. I know Jason Kane was, was one and yeah, he had nothing but great things to say about you. So for anyone, you know, who's thinking about doing something like that, go to the show notes, check out Alex's website, get in contact with his team there and you'll be in the best hands in the industry. So Alex, thanks so much again. Just stay online real brief while I wrap up. So for everyone listening, take care, uh, be well and stay strong. 
Thank you.